Good morning. It is good to be here with you. Um, uh, some of you may not know, but this is actually um, uh, mine and Ray Lynn's uh, and our boys, only our second week back in person here at Grace. It's been away for three months on sabbatical in Birmingham, Alabama, and that was wonderful. Uh, love Birmingham, that's where I'm from. But it is good to be here with you and to see your faces. Uh, we've missed you. And uh, not only have we missed you, we've missed this, uh, worshiping together as the church. And uh, um, Justin, you know, one full service and a quarter of a service together, uh, I, I see the Lord's wisdom in uniting together people in local churches and having them sing together and pray together and sit under the word together and gather together to talk about it. I love it. And, um, and I'm so grateful that we're here with you today. And we're going to be going to the Word today. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 22. Or sorry, Proverbs 22. That didn't sound right. Proverbs 22. And as you turn there, um, I'd like to share with you a statistic that keeps me up at night. A uh, statistic that plagues me both as a parent uh, and as uh, a pastor here at this church that is responsible to oversee children's and student ministries. Uh, and there have been different versions of this statistic put out over the years, but last year, or in 2019, I should say, Lifeway uh, ran a study and they found that 66% of young people who were Active, regular churchgoers walked away from the church for at least a year by the time they were 22 years old. So that means that this study found that two-thirds of students who were formerly a part of the church at the church, regularly uh, at the church. They stepped away from the church within four years of graduating high school. And this is for different reasons. Uh, they cited several reasons. Some of those are people moved away to college and they didn't plug in to a church. Um, there was hypocrisy within the church and that turned people away. There was a lack of meaningful connection and relationships within the church. They just didn't feel like it was important to go Political differences within the church turned people away. Uh, people ended up getting a job on Sunday, and that conflicted with the ability to gather together on a Sunday. And so ultimately, for some reason or another, these young people walked away for at least a year. 66%. Two-thirds. Now, gratefully, I haven't seen this statistic prove true at Grace. Gratefully, uh, many and many of the students who've gone through our children's ministry and student ministry that have graduated on are continuing to walk with the Lord. Uh, and that fills me with joy. But there are students who I'm aware of who have walked away. And, and that grieves me. I, th those are the students who uh, I can't uh, fall asleep for thinking about. And so uh, to some extent, that is, that is true here as well. But imagine for a second that it was perfectly true at Grace. Imagine if two-thirds of our youth group kids, our high school students and our middle school students, 
would walk away from the church and the faith within four years. Imagine for a second that our fifth grade Sunday school class, that two-thirds of them, 66%, would walk away from their relationship with the Lord, or the owls, or the eagles. Again, 66%. Do you imagine faces and names? Do you see how devastating that would be? We have children who are going to gather on the playground or on the patio in just an hour from now. What would it be like if if two-thirds of them just ultimately decided this wasn't important, not worth their time? That's terrifying, right? That is a devastating thought for us to consider as a faith family. These are our children. These are our children. As a church, they are ours. They are our responsibility. So what are we supposed to do in light of statistics like these? Is there anything we can do? And that becomes the the question in my mind. As As a faith family, as parents, is there anything that we can do that will guarantee that our children will walk with the Lord and continue to walk with the Lord until they enter into glory? That's the question. Well, fortunately, the Bible speaks. Fortunately, the Bible is declaring us truth and it declares to us wisdom. It doesn't tell us everything that we would like to know, but it does speak. And the Proverbs teach us the way of wisdom. And wisdom certainly has something to say about these questions today. The Proverbs tell us about family and the importance of family. And they tell us the importance of raising children in a particular way. And so today, we're going to spend our time in the Word, letting the Proverbs guide our thinking and hopefully compel us to be the sort of church that loves its children so that they may have a chance to know and enjoy God today, tomorrow, and on into eternity. And so we're going to see four things as we dive into the Proverbs, four things that we can do that will help play a part in ensuring that the children of grace will walk with the Lord. First, wisdom says teach the gospel. Wisdom says teach the gospel. Second, wisdom says teach the gospel in word, with her mouth. Third, wisdom says teach the gospel in deed, our actions. And finally, wisdom says know and believe the gospel for yourself. Now I want to pray and dive into this in just a moment, but before we do, Um, A quick disclaimer, today uh, we're going to be looking at a passage that is most obviously addressed to parents. That said, this is God's word and therefore it is for all of us. Uh, It is for every one of us, for our instruction, for our edification. It's meant to encourage us and cause us to adore Jesus. And so there is an obvious target for this passage, but this is for all of us And there will be times where I'm more obviously addressing parents this morning. And if you are single or if you are married and you do not have children, I want to urge you, hang in there with me. Hang in there because this word is for you. And I hope by the end of our time in the word to show you how this word applies to you as well as the the various parents who are in attendance here today or who are gathering with us online. So there's my disclaimer. Proverbs 22.6 If you would, turn your eyes there and let's read this together. 
train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for gathering us together today so that we might worship you, so that we might hear from you and that we might be moved to adore Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would take your word and put it into our hearts. And Father, I pray today, uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday, a day where churches all across the United States gather uh, to recognize uh, the unborn as, um, as image bearers, as those uh, who are worth investing in and fighting for. Lord, I pray that you would work in us uh, this, this reality, this understanding that children are gifts from you, uh, that they are blessings. And so, Lord, I pray that we would love and appreciate life uh, and especially those lives of our children as we go to you in your word today. And so, Lord, we pray uh, that you would do uh, wonderful things amongst us and we offer you this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so again, uh, the first thing we want to see from this proverb uh, and in answering this question of, is there anything we can do to ensure that our children walk with the Lord continually, uh, we, we come to this point. Wisdom says, teach the gospel. Teach the gospel. What, if anything, can we do to ensure that our children will walk with the Lord and continue to walk with the Lord? The Proverbs come along and they say, train up your children in the way that they should go. Train up your children in the way that they should go, and they will not depart. That's the answer. Boom. All right, I'm glad we settled it. Here's what this is saying, though. Uh, Train up, dedicate, devote. In other words, teach your children. Teach your children the way that they should go, i.e., the way that leads to life. Teach them God's way, the, the way that leads to eternity, I think as we view this through a New Testament lens, we could say, uh, teach them the gospel. And when they are older, they will continue to live according to that way. In other words, they will continue to live according to the gospel. They will not depart. But here's the thing. The difficulty of this verse is that we all know people who when they were young were taught the gospel, right, faithfully. And yet, they did depart. They did walk away. Maybe somebody comes to mind for you. Maybe your own children come to mind. That's a hard thought, and I'm so sorry if that's the case. Maybe a a brother or a sister comes to mind. Maybe friends, maybe, maybe children from this church. Maybe, maybe a name is in your mind right now that was taught the gospel faithfully and they did depart. And so the question, is God's word true here? Sadly, uh, this passage doesn't make a promise to us. It doesn't make a promise to us. It's important here to remember what a proverb is. This is review. Nevertheless, it is important. Proverbs are not promises. Proverbs are generally true sayings, wise sayings. They tell us what typically happens. And so here, in this wonderful passage, we do not get a promise. No, we don't get a formula that if we do this and we do this, then it is a guarantee that God will save our children and preserve our children. 
Unfortunately, there is nothing we can do that guarantees that our children will walk with God. As sobering of a reality as that is, we do not have a guarantee. But that's good for us to know. One, it's good for us to know because it it reminds us that we are not God. We are not God and we can't save, but God can save. God can save. Two, it can alleviate a lot of inappropriate shame that some of us may feel as a result of our children and where they are today. We need to know that there is nothing that we can ultimately do to work salvation in our children. Proverbs are not promises. Now, I have sort of explained this verse away many times in my life that I feel the need to confess that uh, this sort of apologetic of this verse is where I have often lived. I've, I've dealt with parents or I've wrestled myself. And as I've come to the wisdom of this proverb, I've often thought, you know, proverbs aren't promises. Proverbs aren't promises. And so it makes sense that there will be exceptions to this rule. And I sort of approach this passage apologetically, living in that place that it often doesn't work. Proverbs aren't promises. But over the years, I've learned that by jumping to this rationale too quickly, I've kept myself and I believe I've kept others from being comforted, from being filled with hope, and from being motivated by the wonder of the wisdom contained within this proverb. You see, this verse may not promise salvation for our children, but it does tell us that if we work faithfully and diligently to teach our children the gospel, then typically, usually, normally, oftentimes, they will know and enjoy God now and forever. And that is good news, Grace. That is worth rejoicing in, and that is worth resting in because it will compel us to faithful action. And so, Grace, I urge you, teach your children the gospel. Grace, let us be the sort of church that teaches our children the gospel. Because if we do, wisdom says that there is a good chance, a good chance, a decent chance, Oftentimes, our children will not depart from the Lord. But this raises an important question. How do we teach? How do we teach the gospel to our children? And so, uh, we want to answer that question. Wisdom says teach the gospel, and it says teach the gospel in word. Teach the gospel in words. Make this point. I first want to read from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And this passage does several things. But one of the things that it does is it gives the parent their job description. And so as I read, I want you to listen for the job description of the parent. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words... These words that I command you today, they shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. 
and you shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So this is the Shema. Uh, no doubt one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible. And these words, they were said to Israel when they were on the brink of entering the promised land. They, they were about to enter into the promised land. And, and so in uh, their anticipation of entering the promised land, uh, as they get instruction for what it's going to be like for them to live as the people of God in the promised land, this place that God has brought to them, the, the job description for the parents is given. And so what are parents to do according to this passage? Parents, not the Levites, not the temple priest, not, not the leaders of the people of God. No, parents were to teach the words of God about God to their children. They were to, to do this when they sat down. In other words, they were to formally teach their children the words of God about God. And they were to do this when they rose up. They were to teach them informally the words, about God, words of God about God. Parents were responsible for ensuring that the knowledge of God would be passed down through generation to generation by taking the simple step of teaching their children the, the character of God, the, the plan of God, what he had done in delivering them from Egypt and, and how he had been at work in, in the midst of them in the wilderness and, and as they roamed and roamed and roamed, how he was faithful now that he's bringing them into the promised land. That's the parents' responsibility. It's their duty. And the entire book of Proverbs is really uh, this being lived out. I mean, if you start right in the very first chapter of Proverbs, Proverbs is cast as a father's instruction and a mother's teaching to their son. And if you were to read through the book of Proverbs, especially chapters 1 through 11, it reads like a dad teaching his son, like him saying, come along, son, let me, t- let me tell you some things. Let me teach you the way of wisdom. I want you to know how to be wise. I want you to know the pathway to life. I want you to know God's ways. And so the Bible, the book of Proverbs, Deuteronomy 6, Psalm 78, Psalm 127, 128, Ephesians 5, we can go on and on and on. It makes, a, it makes the very important point that parents have a responsibility towards their, cho- their children. This isn't a suggestion. This is the job of the parent. They're to teach their children who God is, what he's like, what he's done for them, what he desires of them. And this, is, this instruction, it can't be left up to chance. It, it, can't, it can't be delegated off to another. It can't be left ambiguous. No, it is a parent's clear duty to teach their children the gospel and to do so with their words. Uh, just this past week, uh, Philip Pea. Uh, wherever he is, uh, he uh, helped me to set up the sound at 412. And that was important because I know nothing about sound. I know nothing about how these microphones work. It baffles my mind that somehow what, what I'm speaking into a microphone and that is projecting to you all. Uh, nevertheless, I ended up with my responsibility being to set up sound at 412 this past week. And I didn't know what to do. And so Philip came along and he taught me. 
He taught me. He taught me uh, what chords go where. He taught me the names of the chords. He taught me the names of these boxes. And he walked me through and he taught me so that I would know how to set up sound at 412. But the thing is, is that was really helpful because there was no way that I was going to somehow magically divine how all of this stuff works. That it wasn't like if you just gave me enough time, I'd figure it out. I wasn't going to figure it out. I needed help. I needed someone who had knowledge to come along and take me by the shoulder and say, this is what this is. This is how you do this. And Philip was my teacher on, on just on Wednesday. And I'm grateful for that. And that's the idea, the simple idea behind this point. Whose responsibility is it ultimately for a child to be taught the word of God? Whose responsibility is it ultimately for a child to be taught the gospel? Again and again and again in the scriptures we see that's the parent's job. A child will spend precious little time at church. Precious little time at church. Maybe uh, some gather here on a Sunday morning in the, in the larger assembly, uh, an hour in the children's ministry, maybe a midweek gathering, maybe one other thing. So we're talking like, like four hours a week at church to be discipled and to be taught the ways of God and to be taught the gospel. Friends, that's not sufficient. That's not enough. No, children, they need their parents to come along and to teach them the the word of God, the way of God, the gospel itself, day in and day out, when they rise and when they sleep, when they walk around, when they sit down. It needs to be on their doorpost so that the knowledge of God can be passed along to them. Our children aren't going to magically figure out this stuff. How will they know unless someone teaches them? Parents, if we want our children to know about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then we need to take that mantle of responsibility upon ourselves. And as a church, we need to take that mantle of responsibility upon ourselves to ensure that not just my children, but all of the children of grace would know and enjoy Jesus. There's an age of opportunity that we're dealing with here. Studies say that 63% of Christians will trust Christ between the ages of 4 and 14. Aside from the 1040 window, these are probably the two most important numbers that we can be aware of as Christians. 4 to 14, 63% of Christians will trust Christ between then. The number gets even higher if you include up to 18. And so between the ages of 4 and 14, we have the opportunity to teach our children the gospel so that they might believe in Jesus And then we have the opportunity to lay a master foundation so that they will know and enjoy Jesus forever. That's our opportunity. And so I urge you, take advantage of that opportunity. Now briefly, I want to try to get very, very practical. Um, I won't go on and on here, but my conviction is that a lot of us parents know this, but we struggle with this for any number of reasons. Sometimes because of insecurity, Sometimes we just don't know what to do, and so, so we need help. Some of us struggle to do something because we don't prioritize it. And if that's the case, then, then I want to gently suggest that you take account of your priorities and you reprioritize your life. We're preparing our children for heaven, and so there is nothing more important than that. But for those of us who are searching for something to do, who are insecure, Here's what uh, Raylan and I have started doing, and this is what I want to advocate uh, as best as I can for. Um, and, and I want to also be clear, this is from me. This is not the Bible. You will not be tested on this. and I don't think that you'll be judged on this should you not take advantage of this. But 
I suggest that you regularly, and I'm thinking nightly or multiple times throughout the week, do three things. Uh, I, I suggest that you read the Bible together as a family, that you sing together, and that you pray together. So read the Bible, sing, and pray. This is pretty much the, the stuff that we do when we gather together to worship on a Sunday morning, right? It doesn't have to be long. I'm thinking, you know, 10, 15 minutes. Read a chapter of the Bible uh, or a storybook Bible and, and then uh, sing a hymn and then pray together. If you have older kids, maybe at the dinner table, younger kids, uh, maybe as a nighttime routine. Spend a minute asking a couple questions about, about the story that you read in the Bible. Um, uh, ask if there's anything that stood out from the song. Ask your children to pray. Ask your spouse to pray. Keep track of what you've prayed for. Now, the reason I suggest this, this way of uh, worshiping with your family is because if you do this regularly, over the long haul, you will have taught through a massive chunk of Scripture. You have taught doctrine uh, as, as we sing these beautiful songs, maybe hymns. Uh, beautiful doctrine is going to be expounded upon. And you will instruct your children in how to pray. In short, though we don't use this word very often, you will have catechized your children. You will have taught them the basics of the faith. And you will have laid a foundation so that they can live for Christ and live in Christ for the entirety of their lives on into glory. You will have taught them the gospel in your words. So again, that's for me. It's not of the Lord, but I think there's wisdom in a model like this. If you want to know what to do with your family, talk to me. Talk to the youth staff. Talk to the children's ministry staff. We live for this kind of stuff, and it would be our honor to come alongside you and help you. So, uh, we teach the gospel in word, but that's not the only way we teach, is it? We don't merely teach content. We don't merely teach the what of the gospel. We also teach the gospel in our actions, right? Well, this is our third point. Wisdom says teach the gospel indeed. Teach the gospel indeed. Consider a few Proverbs or a couple of Proverbs. Proverbs, Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. Proverbs 27. The righteous who walks in his integrity Blessed are his children after him. These are just two Proverbs that teach us an age-old lesson. Our actions matter. And where parents are concerned, where children continuing to walk in the ways of the Lord are concerned, our actions are incredibly significant. On the one hand, these Proverbs show us that uh, they show us that blessing tends to flow from faithful parents to their children. Blessing tends to flow from faithful parents to their children, and curses tend to flow from unfaithful parents to their children. I think about Noah and the ark. This, this story stood out to me a ton while I was away on sabbatical. Genesis 6 says that Noah was a righteous man who walked with the Lord. And, and as the story goes, Noah was given instructions to build an ark because God was going to judge the world 
uh, by sending a flood and, and wiping out the inhabitants of the earth. But Noah, his favor rested upon him, and so he went and he told him how to build the ark. And Noah listened. He was faithful, and he responded, and he built this ark, and the floods came down, and Noah passed through the flood of God's judgment in the ark safely and landed on dry ground. But the thing is, it wasn't just Noah who passed through the flood of God's wrath, right? Right? Genesis 6 doesn't say anything about the righteousness or the moral character of Noah's family. Nevertheless, Noah's three children and their wives, they also boarded the ark. And on account of Noah's righteousness, they were able to pass through the flood of God's wrath and land on dry ground. Does that sound a little bit familiar? It sounds a little bit like gospel language to me. So righteous Noah was saved, and on account of righteous Noah, his children were saved as well. Noah's faithfulness resulted in blessing for his children. On the other hand, these two Proverbs that we just considered, that they teach us that righteous living is one of the ways that we validate the truths that we pass down to our children. How do we get the gospel, not just into the head, but into the hearts of our children? How do we get it deep down into their beings so that they believe these things, they own these things, their faith becomes their own? Well, one of the ways we do that is we demonstrate the beauty of those words that we teach and the worthwhileness of those words that we teach and the life-changing nature of those words that we teach by living in light of them day after day as best as we possibly can with the power and help of the Holy Spirit. And as we do this, we invite our children to believe the gospel words and to appropriate the truths of the gospel for themselves. And so it's no wonder that Paul would say, follow me as I follow Christ. Anyone has spent any amount of time around kids, young or old, knows that they are watching us. They take their cues from us. I saw this uh, very clearly in two ways while we were in Alabama. Uh, the first was when I was watching Alabama football. Now, a few of you have watched Alabama football games with me, or you know my reputation, and so you know that when things aren't going well, things can get a little tense, and um, I can become a bit uptight. Well, There was one really big Alabama football game, and it was a tense moment. Uh, We were tied with another team, and uh, something didn't go Alabama's way. And I responded, oh, come on. So not the worst thing that I've said before, uh, gratefully, but that's what I said. Come on, you know, kind of exasperated, half yell at the TV. Well, Henry, my son, was there watching me, and We moved along. Uh, We continued to watch Alabama football games while we were away, and uh, the strangest thing happened. Whenever Alabama did something and it wasn't perfect, Henry, in an exasperated voice, would say, oh, come on. And so, oops, right? I'm passing something along to him there, right? Second way is a bit better, though. So we gathered together, and, and we attended church while we were in Alabama, it was a great time. I'd love to tell you all about that. But, but we were fortunate to be able to have our children with us at church. And, and so they would come and they would, they would sing with us. And, and the way that often happened is, is I would hold one and Ray Lynn would hold the other. One day I was holding Henry 
we're singing a song. It was Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. And, uh, and during one part of the song, I raised my hand. I had my eyes closed. And I raised my hand in worship to the Lord. And at one point, I, I opened my eyes. And Henry's there also raising his hand looking at me. And, um, and I was grateful for that. I was grateful for that. In the first instance, I modeled for Henry the importance of Alabama football. Not the worst thing in the world, but a thing that I have firsthand seen the danger of. I'm not playing around. The second thing, though, I hope I modeled that Jesus is worthy of worship. In both instances, Henry was paying attention. He was taking his cues from me, from his dad, and he was figuring the world out by watching his mom and his dad. And he saw Alabama was worth getting upset over, and he saw that Jesus was worth raising hands for. Here's the idea. Our actions, our actions matter to the children of grace. They matter. They have incredible power to bless, and they have incredible power to validate or invalidate the gospel truths and messages that we seek to pass along to them. Does your life communicate to the children of grace that the ways of God, these ways that lead to life, Eternal life, the gospel itself, does your life communicate that these are the most important things and they're worth prioritizing and living for? What is your life centered around? Do you want your children to repent? I hope you do. Do you repent? Would your way of life teach your children how to repent and how to ask for forgiveness? Do you want your children to forgive? And so then I ask, do you forgive? Do you want your children to to value being a faithful member of the church? I hope you do. Does your life demonstrate that you value being a part of the church or does it demonstrate that you value sports or academics or success in life or any number of other things that might be very good but not ultimate things? Grace, if our actions teach our children that soccer or money or academics or leisure or friends or success or any number of other things are the most important things to be prioritized, then they will believe us. But if we do our best to teach our children that God saves sinners in Jesus Christ and he is worth giving everything for, he's worth living our lives for and laying our lives down for, and that is lived out in our actions, then they will believe us. This is what the Bible says. This is the wisdom of the Word of God. Now, unfortunately, uh, we often end up emphasizing teaching the Word or teaching these gospel truths in Word, or we emphasize teaching these gospel truths in deed. That tends to be the sort of people that we are. Our children need parents who are faithful to teach in Word and in deed. All teaching in word and not in deed leads to resentment over hypocrisy. All teaching in deed and not in word leads to a shallow, untethered faith that can be easily dismissed. We need both. Now, this is a massive task. A massive task, but it's our job. This is what we've been called to. Now, uh, now that I've overwhelmed you with what is expected of us and what has been entrusted to us, I want to move to our our final closing point. Wisdom says, know and believe the gospel yourself. 
Wisdom says know and believe the gospel yourself. Three quick reasons why we ought to know and believe the gospel ourselves. First, we need grace. We need grace. Remember earlier when we read the Shema, uh, which gave their parent, gave parents the job description. Israel's about to enter the promised land. Everything's going well, and they're entrusted to pass on the knowledge of God to the generations that follow them so that throughout Israel's history, they would know God. They would worship him. They would be the people of God. Well, if we're to fast forward just to Judges chapter 2, then we'd see that it takes one to two generations for Israel to completely blow it. One to two generations for Israel to fall on their face so majestically that, that judgment is going to be incurred. One to two generations for Israel to fail to pass on the knowledge of God to the next generations. Now, I think this is important to consider because oftentimes we are supposed to see ourselves in Israel, right? When we see Israel blow it and mess up, our first step should be, how am I like Israel? We should read ourselves into Israel in those instances. And I've shared with you the expectation for Israel, and I've shared the expectation for, for the Christian family, right? For Christian parents, well, just like Israel, Christian parents are going to blow it. They are going to mess up. And oftentimes they will mess up in majestic ways as well. Grace, we will fall on our face when it comes to uh, teaching our children the ways of the Lord. We will sin and there will be consequences. Our, our children will feel the effects of that. And that is a terrible, terrible thing. Nevertheless, it will happen. None of us will nail this perfectly. None of us will be perfectly righteous in this endeavor. I spent the past three months studying and considering that parents should teach their kids about God. And I've studied all the benefits. I've, I've uh, wrestled with the statistics. I know why this is important. And nevertheless, many nights I would just completely forget to do anything with my kids. Other nights, there would be other things that were going on and they would overshadow uh, teaching my children the ways of the Lord. I would blow it even though I know at a deep level the importance of this stuff. We will mess up. We will mess up and we will be in need of constant grace where parenting is concerned, where raising children is concerned. The good news is that God gives grace in his son, Jesus. We have a gracious God, and he extends his grace to us in the person and work of Christ. You may have blown it as a parent. You may be in the process of blowing it as a parent, and if so, I hope you have an opportunity to make that right. I hope you have an opportunity to repent or to, to turn the ship. Regardless, the gospel says that if you are in Christ, that you are loved and accepted, that you are cherished and your sins are dealt with. The only way that we're ever going to be able to parent effectively is if we're able to, to get, behind, get in front of all the massive uh, shame and guilt that we all experience as parents. Talk to anyone around you, any parent, they feel that sort of stuff constantly. And so we have to know the gospel. We have to know that Jesus took our sins upon his shoulders. And then we can live in light of that. Wisdom says know and believe the gospel yourself because God saves sinners, and the gospel teaches that. We need to know and believe the gospel because the gospel teaches that God saves sinners. Please meditate on that beautiful reality. God saves sinners, not us. We receive the gift of grace through faith. And that's true of our children as well. Praise God for that. 
Acts 2 says the promise of salvation is for you and for your children. It's beautiful news. But the beautiful news tells us that salvation is of the Lord and not of us. Yet he's pleased to work through the faithful efforts of his people. And so our efforts matter. So what do we do? We seek to adorn the gospel with good works. We take our job as parents seriously and being motivated by the gospel, we give ourselves to teaching the truths of the gospel and so that uh, and, and living in light of the gospel so that this might be observed by our children so they may have the best chance to take hold of salvation by grace through faith. I just want to say too that as we give ourselves this task, God works. By the end of our, our time away in sabbatical as we were plugging away and having incredibly disastrous times of trying to read the Bible and singing together with our kids. Uh, there was a, a point uh, right before we came back where uh, it was one of those nights where I was thinking, you know what, I'm just not going to do anything tonight. And Henry, as we were going to bed, said, are we going to read the Bible? And I said, do you want to, buddy? Yeah, let's read the Bible. And it took three months of terrible times trying to read the Bible and singing and praying, and it just kids not listening, me being frustrated, for Henry and James to start to get it a little bit, for, for James to start praying these beautiful, tiny little prayers that warm my heart. God works through the faithful efforts of his people motivated by the gospel. So remember that God saves sinners, not us. Let's let that truth motivate us. Finally, the gospel creates a new family. The gospel creates a new family. To close, we want to recognize the beautiful New Testament reality that says that the gospel has created a new people. You see, in the Old Testament, the family was the vehicle that God used to pass the knowledge of his name on from generation to generation. Well, now in the New Testament, we learn that as a result of the gospel, God has united a people to himself, a people for his own possession, and he's united them into a very special group. And what group is that? A spiritual family. A family. It's as, it's as if God spent thousands of years emphasizing the importance of the family only to get to the New Testament to show us how special the bonds are that we share together in Christ. As we read the Old Testament, we read about all these responsibilities and the, and the uh, priority of the family. Now we can understand a little bit of what God has mysteriously and miraculously worked in us towards one another. We are a real family. Not a fake family. This isn't just an analogy. We're a family. We've been knit together in Christ by the Spirit. And so now we have responsibilities towards one another. We're not just friends. We're not just people who, who are Together on a Sunday morning, we're brothers and sisters. We're, we're spiritual fathers and spiritual sons and spiritual mothers and spiritual daughters. And these responsibilities are to be embraced. And, and so part of what Proverbs 22, the wisdom of this says, is that we are spiritual children, and so we should give ourselves to the task of being spiritual children underneath spiritual parents. It also says that some of us will be spiritual parents and we are to give ourselves to the task of teaching the ways of God to our spiritual children. That the knowledge of God might be passed from generation to generation and so that we might know and enjoy God now and forever. This is a New Testament church reality. And so it doesn't matter if you're a parent. It doesn't matter if you're single or if you'll be single forever. No, this is a, an us thing. 
And so grace, we have to know the gospel because it will situate us into this passage and it will cause us to live out the wisdom of this passage so that this church, so that this church will be built up in love, so that this church has the best shot of reaching the finish line by God's grace with the help of his spirit. And so I urge you, let's take the wisdom of this word seriously. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son Jesus who has knit us together uh, by the Spirit so that we are a spiritual family. Lord, I pray that we would take that seriously and that we would love one another in word and deed, giving the gospel to one another uh, day in and day out so that when, when we are old, we will not depart from you. Father, I pray that you would strengthen parents uh, who are so worn down and so beat up uh, to do the hard work of loving their children and to taking that mental responsibility to pass on the knowledge of your holy name and your gospel to them so that they might believe in Jesus and experience everlasting life. Uh, thank you for our time in the word. Uh, go with us now, we pray in Jesus' name.